Welcome to Woman's Journal 2.0. Brought to you by Equal Means Equal. I'm Wendy Murphy, an impact litigator specializing in the constitutional and civil rights of women and children. And I'm Kamala Lopez, an artist and activist. And we are here to connect, educate, and mobilize women and our allies in the new movement to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment. Hey, everybody, welcome back to Women's Journal 2.0, specifically episode seven. I'm here today with two fabulous people, my co-host, of course, Kamala Lopez. Hey, Cam. Hey, so happy to be back from the we have, wars, yes, the wars we have, in Virginia. And we have so much to talk about and celebrate with you on the ground there with our other guests today, the fabulous Natalie White. Hey, Natalie. Hi, Wendy. Thank you so much for having me on today. Hi, Kamala. Hi, Natalie. Having you on, you should be on every single episode. It's just that you're so busy most of the time. But, you know, that's an open invitation. You should always be on if you can be because you are the vice president and co-director of Equal Means Equal and one of the strongest uh, feminist forces out there today. Um, Natalie's the one that's gotten herself uh, arrested various times on behalf of the Equal Rights Amendment. Thank you, Natalie. Yeah. You're very thank, welcome. Thank you for the handcuffs, Natalie. <laughs> yeah, they were nice pieces of jewelry. And you know what's funny? So Natalie's not with us all the time on the show, but she is with us in spirit because we're always motivated by her. We're always talking about her and we're always, let's say, uh, jazzed because if Natalie weren't out there doing her artistic version of activism, I think we'd be a lot more dull. I mean, Cam might not be more dull. I'd be a lot more dull. Uh So I want to talk to you guys first. I want to pretend like I'm I'm the host and you guys are the guests because... You deserve to be interviewed, frankly, on every channel for the unbelievable work you did on the ground in Virginia. Just, you know, tell us what you did, how you came up with this idea for the ice cream for equality and what you were doing in the house down there and how how it made a difference. I think people don't realize that grassroots activism is a thing today. It actually works. And being on the ground really made a difference in Virginia. So why don't you guys talk about that? Natalie, Uh, you go for it. Okay, so um, down in Virginia, we kept on going back year after year. I think this was our fifth year in Virginia, Kamala. Fourth or right? fifth, I'm losing track. Yeah, it's fourth or fifth very year. Very cold whenever we're there. That's all I know. <laughs> yeah, so we kept on going back to Virginia and asking them to vote to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment. They kept voting no or refusing to vote on it at all. So instead of asking this time, we were coming for their seats. And we were, we were, had full intention on getting a Democratic majority in at least the House of Delegates, because although the Senate in past years hasn't had a Democratic majority, they have still had Republicans that have voted yes on the ERA. So last year, they did a bus tour where they took a bus around um, all over um, Virginia and the various districts. And this year, we did an ice cream tour where we gave out ice cream for free. And, you know, like Steve Jobs once said, if you want everyone to like you, go sell ice cream. Well, we gave it away for free. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> and we were focused on 20 districts. Um, we needed to um, keep 10 seats. And um, we were hoping to flip two out of um, the other 10. So 20 districts, keep 10 flip 10, but we only really needed two. But we were focusing on 10, hoping to get two. Um, we flipped six seats. Yeah! In, in the House yeah! of Delegates. And, um, you know, part of our, um, our campaign was the ice cream truck. And then the other part of our campaign was we were trying to unseat um, a few... Um, of house delegates um one in particular where where we rented the house in was chris jones who had been um the architect of the racially gerrymandered maps and um he was the second most powerful um member of the virginia legislature who was a republican so um he had been an incumbent for 21 years in suffolk Um, And most of those times he had run unopposed. And so he was very powerful. 
and we took him down. I'm telling you. I mean, like, I we took him so far down. We were canvassing every single day. We were canvassing every single day. We were um, we were for doing months, for months, for months, for like almost three months. Bye. And um, so so um, we were canvassing every single day for about three months. Um, we did so much canvassing that one woman at Walmart um, uh, said that she had three of our information packages. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's great. And that no, she did. she loved them, but she just didn't need a fourth. Um, did we did we end up doing forty thousand flyers? In, yeah, yeah, we did forty thousand flyers, ten thousand coasters, twenty thousand stickers, a thousand large rally signs, um, and then we did and various, gave out ice cream. We gave yeah. out ice cream. You know what's awesome? Various iterations of the flyer. So we would do one flyer that was purely informational. What is the ERA? How would it help you? Um, and then another flyer, like who are who's running and how do they land on ERA? And um, the original flyer that we had called the 2020 Vision Flyer, which we created with our partner, who we need to really applaud, Katie Hornung from VA Ratify ERA. Katie Rock. Davis, Andrea Miller, um, Lisa Sales, uh, all the amazing work that went on there. Um, they were telling, they had a flyer that was, uh, explaining all the the impact that the racially gerrymandered the redistricting was going to have on each district, and it was a very dense flyer. I mean, very hard to comprehend. And so finally, a week before the election, we just boiled it down to alphabetical numerical order of the top of the districts: who was pro ERA, who was against. Very clean and clear phone number and a, a QR code to find your district because most people they may know the city that they, obviously they know the city they live in but a lot of people do not know the district that they're in so it's, was, if it's being drawn like spider legs and completely and, changing all the time and then in the middle of the circle of the sea were black people yeah that Chris Jones did not want to represent those people and now he doesn't and now <laughs> he doesn't so and so you guys you woke up every day and you just headed out exactly and, and press the flesh press right. the flesh on era so no matter what happened in the district you were educating people which is obviously really important i mean people are still all over the country unaware of what era is why it matters what do you mean it didn't pass in 72 it's still incredible i saw somebody the other day an and a lawyer, by the way, I was at a meeting and he said, uh, what do you mean ERA didn't pass? And he said, I, I've I've not read or heard anything about it. I said, come on, you know what happened in Virginia? He said, no. And But even more than that, I said, have you read and heard nothing in the mainstream news in the past year or so on Equal Rights Amendment? And he said, absolutely nothing. So I, I kind of want to question what news he's reading, but for me, the, my my Twitter feed, my news sources, I, I'm saturated with information about Equal Rights Amendment. Right. Obviously, yeah. I'm choosing certain types of sources, but it's still very discouraging that even an attorney uh, reading mainstream news today um, has not only no idea about ERA, uh, but hasn't read anything. While you guys were literally living, breathing ERA mm -hmm. every day for months, not for months, for years, because Virginia was so close. It was so, so close. close. But in a way, Wendy, I feel like um, that could be seen as a, a hidden gift because we were able to essentially, between August 26th of 2016, to today, we were able to slip under the radar and work directly with the grassroots to target specific goals and specific individuals, moving as many people as necessary, but not um, not creating a huge culture kerfluffle where one really does not exist because we're living in an era where, as you know, facts are almost irrelevant. It's what is the narrative going to be painted? And I guarantee you that had we sounded the alarm more loudly and been able to mobilize 
more of the masses, the anti-equality forces would have extended a lot more capital against us. Yeah, that's a good and point. And they would have potentially turned this, you know, they've been attempting to turn this into a war on abortion, which we all know is absurd because abortion is a right that women enjoy under the right to privacy. But they've done everything they can to connect these two things. If they had been able to put this at the front of the news, you know, as it were, along with the abortion stories that they're doing, I don't think it would have helped us achieve the three states, which has always been our strategy not to start again from scratch or to invalidate the work before or to validate an illegal deadline, but to say, no, um, we only need these three more states. Yeah, I just and, wonder and, if we would have gotten them if well, everybody knew about it. You know what's funny, Cam, that you're pointing out, and everyone who talks about suffrage, now we're coming up on the 100th anniversary of the right to vote, everyone who talks about suffrage comments on how just a couple of votes in Tennessee actually right. put over the line. So exactly. it, it didn't have to be a, na- at the very end, it didn't have to be a national movement. It just had to, had to be a couple of people. And it sounds like something very similar uh, went on in Virginia for you guys this year. And you deserve so much credit. Equal means equal, in my opinion, has not gotten the kind of credit it deserves in much of the mainstream press. There's uh, there appears, appears to be no understanding of, number one, what Equal Means Equal, uh, the film, did, uh, both in terms of uh, how it jump-started the national movement and really, um, you know, put put a face on the problem, if you will, physically with a film, and, and also, um, you know, how it started raising consciousness with young people, and that makes all the difference, of course. And that was a lot of years ago. The film was a very long time ago, but for the film, we wouldn't be where we are. The other thing is, in terms of equal means equals role, uh, you know, to understand the value of a grassroots movement and to have Virginia turn the way it did and not to have the role of equal means equal be the headline in all the news stories was, was very frustrating for me because I know some of the people who were getting the news attention and were getting the headlines weren't even there. They weren't doing any of the work in Virginia and they were being quoted in the news stories uh, as if they were the heroes and, and they weren't. And that irritates me. And it suggests, of course, to me, as we've talked many, many times on this program, that um, the news coverage is not necessarily consistent with with what's really going on. You know, I think that that probably ha- has been said of a- any movement that that achieved its ends. You know, we know for a fact that there was a schism between Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Alice Paul, between the presumed radicals and the more sort of status quo. I I think that um, I I like to call them corporate feminists. There's um, this whole country has gone corporate. Um, And since the ERA was a huge movement in 1972, there's been a concerted acceptance of capital as a, uh, a priori goal of the United States. And we're sitting in this disgusting sewage uh, of outcome of that philosophy. Um, but so we, we have to take a more uh, principled stand here um, and not even go there. The, the problem is that all the money flows to where um, people are speaking and, and saying things and so forth. So it's difficult to do the work that we need to do when the credit goes elsewhere just for purely for funding reasons. But other than that, frankly, um, as I said, you know, we do what we do um, in a targeted, rational, concerted, focused, and energetic manner, and um, and we will achieve our goal, and we will ratify the Equal Rights Amendment in 2020. We and will. We will. I mean, we will. And can about anything else, right? Well, I know, and that's you've right. always said that you don't care about who gets credit. You've always said that you just want to get us over the line, and I appreciate that. But I think we we as a organization, equal means equal, 
have to write a book soon, <laughs> sooner than later, because the history books ought to reflect the truth, not just because it's the right thing to do to give the right credit to the right people, but because the public has a right to know what actually works. And, you know, if the history books don't tell the truth about the film and equal means equal and people on the ground and the ice cream truck and all the stuff you guys did with the flyers and the press and the flesh, if the history books don't reflect that that's what made a difference, and especially with Katie's leadership and the people in Virginia who worked so hard for so many years deserve the credit. And that's not going to, it's not going to inspire people unless the truth is told in some formal sense. So we can choose to write a book. Once we get over the line, we'll, we'll get together on that issue for now. And though, we're doing the sequel, which is so beautiful. You know, Natalie and I have um, been, as you said, running around like lunatics doing bizarre things that are very um, um, cinematic graphic. And we've filmed every single action we've done and we've interviewed countless people since then. And we need to interview you, Wendy, um, and for this um, to complete this next iteration, equal means equal the sequel, which we're two thirds of the way through, and we're going to do a big shoot um, between January seventh and the eighteenth in Richmond. Um, we will film the boat. We will we will um, interview Eileen and Katie and yourself, and re-interview Natalie when she's not six sheets to the wind. Um, <laughs> Because we did a hilarious drunk history of the Equal Rights Amendment, which will be a central and amusing part of the sequel. <laughs> um, so we are going to have the film and the reality of of everything that's been chronicled there's to speak for itself. You know, good, as long as good. we get a good distribution deal this time and are not silence but well, I feel with, like with, totally with or without with or without a good deal the truth will exist and we should be grateful i guess that in today's writing of history books um even if there's no big publisher around to run it um we can create it because we're no longer as a culture technologically speaking we're no longer dependent on the decisions of a big publishing house to uh, tell the truth um but speaking of telling the truth we should talk truthfully about uh, some of the ongoing controversy regarding next steps, because uh, it, it's not entirely um, consistent, the, the stories that are being written now about what happens when Virginia ratifies. As you know, because I tweet constantly about this, um, my opinion is, and I know your opinion is, that as soon as, the minute Virginia ratifies, it's a done deal, ERA is law, we don't even need the archivist to uh, write it in the books because that's a ministerial function, which is to say, yes, it should happen. But even if it didn't, um, amendments become the law of the land the minute the last of the three quarters of the states ratifies. And um, that's my feeling. Now, we know as an organization, because we've been talking about this for years as well, we know that despite our our commitment to that view, there are going to be anti-ERA activists, especially in the southern states, uh, filing lawsuits as soon as Virginia ratifies, and they're going to try to void the ERA on the grounds that the deadline expired in 1982, or even some will say 79, before the first extension. Um, and we are taking the uh, exact opposite view, and we are planning to file lawsuits in courts that have ratified uh, the northern states, uh, where we're going to be asking judges to affirm ERA and and not and and uh, overturn, if you will, the deadline. So let me just clarify that. So the southern unratified states will have anti-ERA advocates or opponents to the ERA filing lawsuits, asking judges in their jurisdictions to say, despite the fact that Virginia ratified the Equal Rights Amendment is no is not the law of the land because the deadline for ratification expired a long time ago, we equal means equal and others will be filing lawsuits in the northern ratified states asking judges there to say the Equal Rights Amendment is the law of the land because the deadline, although it expired, is unconstitutional, therefore may be disregarded. In a way, I see this and I've, I've again, I've tweeted about this. This is sort of like women's civil war. And I hate to call it a war between the north and the south. But if you look at the map of which states have ratified and which have not um, the unratified are almost entirely in the South with a couple of exceptions. Missouri, I think is above the Mason Dixon line and Virginia. And I think, uh, Utah, Utah. Utah. So, so three, three, Arizona. States, but it's, but it's mostly the South is, is what I'm trying to point out here. And it is a kind of North versus South battleground. Once we get ERA 
ratified by Virginia, the fight is going to the courts, whether we like it or not. And it is going to be a fight between the North and the South, which is kind of curious because that is obviously the same kind of fight around slavery. And (laughs) I don't care who you are, uh, second class citizenship for women is a kind of enslavement of women. And it's been like that for women since the beginning of this country. So we do have to think about this as our civil war, only we're not going to be fighting on the the ground with uh, muskets. We're going to be fighting in the courts with briefs. Yeah. Well, so actually, um, during the Confederacy, half of Missouri was in um, the Confederacy and half was in um, the North. So um, technically, if if you want to count all of the states that were part of the Confederacy, Missouri, part of it was part of the Confederacy. So it is all of the Confederacy plus Arizona and Utah. And I love that story about um, the 25-year-old kid um, back when, you know, women's suffrage was happening, about the 25-year-old state senator whose mother, um, you know, wrote him a letter the night before and said, you must vote yes on on, uh, suffrage for women. But um, I really... Um, You know, the 19th Amendment, which talks about alcohol prohibition, um, it has a deadline in it, but it's in the text of the amendment. So that means that Congress and um, and, you know, the writers of our Constitution have all agreed upon in which um, you are allowed to put a, um, a deadline in and onto a constitutional amendment. And it has to be in the text of the amendment. The ERA's um, deadline is not in the text of the amendment. So as soon as Virginia ratifies, ERA will be law. Well, but we have to litigate that question because reasonable people disagree. Uh, or I should say dis- unreasonable people disagree with us. <laughs> but, but the, we, you know, we have two arguments and, and they're both really important and they're both perfectly valid and strong arguments and I think will be respected by at least some courts. Of course, eventually this issue has to be determined by the United States Supreme Court. But in terms of the deadline, the very simple arguments we're going to make, and they really are simple. I mean, they may be uh, unprecedented and, and complicated in a constitutional sense, but they're not complicated in terms of the public's ability to understand why we're making the arguments we're making. One is that Article 5 of the United States Constitution, which creates the power to amend the Constitution, says nothing about deadlines. And, you know, if if you're a conservative or, or not, if you're in charge of interpreting the Constitution, which is true of our federal courts, and we're going to be in federal court, We're going to be saying, look, you have to look at the law. What does the law say? Article 5 says that amendments uh, may be um, added to the Constitution under certain circumstances. What are they? Well, you got to get uh, Congress to pass and then three-fourths of the states to ratify, period. That's all it says. And then the amendment shall be added to the Constitution. That's what Article 5 says. There's nothing in there about deadlines. So when Congress... Very late in the game, by the way. So, the, you know, the vast majority of amendments to our Constitution never had deadlines. Only a, right. hand, only right. a handful of the most recent amendments had deadlines, um, but for the 27th, which is its own story. So we're going to make the argument that Article 5 says nothing about deadlines. Therefore, uh, the court should disregard the deadline that was imposed on ERA. And if that is unsuccessful, and some people argue that... Um, it may fail simply because the United States Supreme Court did decide a case in 1921, the Dillon case, in which it ruled that uh, Congress, well, it could have sort of inferred and and in many ways approved the concept of Congress com- uh, imposing deadlines on uh, the amount of time states have to ratify. Uh, but I wouldn't call it a strong endorsement, number one. Number two, that case is 100 years old. And number three, there are lots and lots of reasons to believe that if the court had to decide that issue again today, it would not have given Congress that authority. And for for one reason, um, lots of scholars say that letting Congress decide how much time the states have to ratify is really the same as giving Congress total authority over the amendatory process. And that creates an imbalance between the power of the federal uh, federal and national government over the power of the states and the people uh, that Congress didn't uh, that the framers didn't intend when they adopted Article Five. Uh, originally, the framers wanted uh, the federal government wanted Congress to have no part 
in the amendatory process. They really wanted it to just be the states, just be the people who decided if and when the Constitution ought to be amended. It ought to be a popular decision by the states and, and the Congress itself should have nothing to say about it. Eventually, they did kind of give Congress a role to play. But if you but but giving Congress the which, by the way, uh, kind of came out of nowhere, giving Congress the power to add deadlines in a sense gives Congress complete Trump power, so to speak, uh, to control the amendment process in that they can give a long deadline to something they like and a short deadline to something they don't like and tie the hands of the states in a way that's profoundly unfair, especially in today's society where uh, you know, things are more complicated than they were a hundred years ago. So, well, very- if, if they're going to make the case about contemporaneity, then they need to make the, the, an explicit deadline known. You cannot say that one deadline gets seven, you know, one piece of legislation gets seven years to complete and another gets 200 years. That's just completely inappropriate. If Congress does have the ability to put deadlines on the amendment. Number one, it should be in the body of the thing that's being voted on so people understand they're also voting on the deadline. And number two, it should be a consistent deadline across the board, otherwise it's by, it's it's completely randomly unfair and subject to political process, which is the exact opposite of what the whole thing is supposed to be about. Well, that that point is really important that that the framers clearly, clearly wanted the amendatory process to be a much more serious, much more somber, um, much more thoughtful process than regular lawmaking, which is obviously not only subject to corruption, but subject to the kinds of things that have little to do with the serious decisions attached to things like creating human rights or, you know, expanding things like equality and due process. Um, But Cam, you pointed out something really important, which is the other reason I think we have a strong argument. And that is, although in 1921, the United States Supreme Court said that Congress may well have uh, the power to add uh, time limits to uh, the amount of time states need to ratify, uh, the court said in that case in a footnote, but an important footnote, um, that although deadlines were appropriate and they didn't want to declare how long was a, a, a reasonable deadline and that that decision ought to be up to Congress, they did say that it, that the deadline ought to be reasonable. And the court also said the definition of reasonable is not for us to decide. That's a non-justiciable issue. In other words, Congress can decide without us overseeing that decision, what reasonable means. However, they dropped a footnote and said, there are things that are clearly beyond reasonable in terms of the contemporaneity question, you know, the closeness in time between when Congress acts and when the states finally ratify. Um, and they cited several, at uh, as of that point in time, as of 1921, not yet ratified amendments. And one of them was the Madison Amendment, popularly known today as the 27th Amendment. And um, all, and what that amendment provides, as you both know, is that, that uh, congressional pay raises are now basically embedded in the Constitution. Um, when the court, it is, it's certainly not as important as equality and due process and equal protection. Uh, I don't think anybody should argue that it's worthy of constitutional protection, but it's a little late for us to make that argument now. Nonetheless, um, the court in 1921 said that the Madison Amendment as of 1921, was already much too old to ratify because it had passed Congress in 1789. So do the math. Between 1789 and 1921, whatever that number of years is, the Supreme Court of the United States declared that it was already too old to ratify. And we all know what happened. Despite that mandate in the 1921 Dillon decision, 1992 rolls along, somebody uh, resurrects the Madison Amendment and they start voting on it again in a variety of um, states and boom, it becomes ratified by the necessary three-fourths of the states in 1992. Most of most people were aghast at the time saying, you've got to be kidding me. You cannot ratify an amendment 203 years after it passed Congress, especially where the United States Supreme Court has already said it was too old in 1921. So that, despite that that, that that is just a crazy thing to do. It did it did do a couple of good things for women. Number one, 
it pissed off so many women's rights groups and ERA activists that they started this groundswell of activity toward the three-state strategy, which we we are now enjoying the fruits of that, and and I think you know will will eventually lead to success. But it also shined a, an, an ugly light on Congress in terms of its integrity, because once the Madison Amendment was ratified by the 38th state, Congress undertook to pass a referendum. I don't even know what you call it, actually. They passed a bill. I don't even know what they called it, but they 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 voted on a thing, a document saying we hereby approve the 27th Amendment. We we declare uh, as a body, we declare the 27th Amendment valid again, raising eyebrows because scholars said, who the hell do you think you are? declaring the 27th Amendment valid, whether something is constitutionally valid is to be decided by the courts, not you, Congress. You are a different branch of government. You don't declare anything valid as a constitutional matter. So I think it was that degree of arrogance and disrespect for what the court said in Dillon about how it was already too late for the 27th Amendment to be ratified, that that kind of um, puts everything out there now as if the issue has never been decided, because in a sense, Congress overturned Dillon in 1992 when Congress decided to declare the 27th Amendment valid despite the passage of 203 years. They, in effect, thumbed their nose at the United States Supreme Court and declared the basis of that decision no longer good law. That's a key argument for us. When we go to court after Virginia ratifies, we are going to be saying don't tell us that Dillon gave Congress the power to create deadlines because what the Congress did in 1992 has obliterated the integrity of that decision. And that's a separate argument from why the decision oughtn't be respected anyway, because it's 100 years old, because the country has changed, because the things that the court said back then about why deadlines are good no longer stand. I mean, we are going to make law. We are going to make law and we're going to make good law, not just for the ERA, but for the people, for the right of people in this country to maintain the integrity of our constitutional amendatory process by making sure that the states, the states decide when an amendment is timely ratified, not the Congress, not the corrupt Congress, the people through the states decide when an amendment has timely been ratified. So that's going to be our argument. And also, um, putting such a short deadline onto civil rights legislation is a gross infringement upon the state's right to ratify. You know, um, they should take this very seriously. The, the Constitution of the United States of America and its ratifications and its amending process should be taken extremely seriously. This is not something... This that that you should give such a short deadline to the states need to be sure that they are that they are voting to ratify this, and that's why having such a short deadline on civil rights legislation is just unacceptable. Yeah, and think about think about <clears throat> comparing. Um, okay, so I'm just going to take what you just said, Natalie, and and just uh, turn it a little bit into even more simple logic about why having enough time matters. If you want the states to make a careful decision, because, and this is what the Supreme Court said in Dillon, because you want to make sure that you have national consensus at the time right. of ratification, right? You want to make sure that um, things don't go hokey, that you have, you know, uh, three-fourths of the states not on board um, but voting incorrectly, and then you you know you wait another hundred years, and then one more state ratifies, but the other states have meanwhile changed their minds. You know you don't want to give it the kind of time, either too short or too long, that allows consensus to dis disappear. So or or to develop corruptly. So the question is: Is consensus demonstrated or not um, by the number? of states that ratify or is consensus demonstrated by a combination of things. And this is where I think your point really works. We know we have consensus for the ERA in this country right. through every exactly. device, through every measuring device we've ever used, right? right? From Look at the women's march. Polling and women's march from, from every potential source of data you can come up with. 
we know there is not just consensus, there's massive consensus. There's, you know, the vast majority of people want ERA. So how silly is it that we would not ratify ERA on some kind of technicality about a short, needlessly short deadline that actually undermines the presence of consensus rather than demonstrating it? That's that's kind of what I mean about the arbitrariness of having having a deadline with a this this fixed period. For me, the fixed period means only one thing. Gobs and gobs of money will be spent only during that very short window of time to make sure in a corrupt sense that the states don't ratify. Um, and then you can be done with it, right? And just and so this is where the corruption problem kicks in, that a very short window of uh, uh, for a deadline facilitates corruption in all the wrong ways, undermining the goal of uh, being able to establish and demonstrate consensus where having no deadline at all maybe maybe doesn't make sense either, um, but it certainly makes sense, makes more sense. I guess that's what I'm saying is having no deadline at all makes more sense because you can ensure that you can ensure that you have consensus through other mechanisms than just looking at whether contemporaneity is is in place. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just an old, it's an old fashioned way of thinking about whether you have consensus, this notion of let's let's have a short deadline. It forces consensus. Well, one thing that I would bring up, I'm not an attorney, but it, it would I would like you to bring it up in these cases, especially when you get to the Supreme Court, is all of the international human rights courts have said that the United States is violating the human rights of its women and girls by not providing any guaranteed protection against this pandemic of violence where we are now third most dangerous nation on the planet when it comes to sexual violence and the 10th most dangerous um, place in the world for women. So if if the United States, um, you know, if if they want to get caught up in whether it's seven years or 10 years or whatever years, what they need to do is look at the shame and the embarrassment they're bringing upon this nation by so clearly being hypocrites on basic human rights for more than half of the population. You know, let's take it out of this kind of bullshit, this legalized, this legal bullshit. The fact of the matter is, that we institutionally discriminate against the majority of our population and we do it in in violation of international law and the United States needs to be held to account and stop acting like it's the moral policeman when it is the the fucking fox in the hen house. (laughs) To put it mildly, we do have very, very high rates of violence against women in this country that are directly tied to their subjugation. And study after study after study shows that if you declare an entire class of people second-class citizens, they will suffer disproportionately high rates of violence. We see that, uh, you know, we've seen that for decades, not decades, centuries in this country because women have never been equal in this country. And, um, you know, it's not that complicated. But the but I think the problem is um, there's a lot of money being made on the backs of women, literally, from trafficking to pornography. Uh, you know, the notion that 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 men uh, enjoy a privilege, if you will, uh, with regard to their ability to control women's lives and bodies and and sexual access to women's bodies has always been a bipartisan male entitlement. Um, you're asking, you're not just asking one party or the other to do the right thing. You're asking uh, an entire nation's wealth to do the right thing. And we have to be, we, we can't be naive about this. There are individual men who will say, the, you know, I'm, I don't need this privilege to hurt women and I'm happy to have ERA and I don't understand why women aren't equal. But, but if you peel back the layers of that argument, there are enormous amounts of wealth protected mostly by men, some women, that is earned because women are not equal. I'm just sorry to say it as bluntly as that, but but the fact is, if our legal system was obligated to protect women equally, which is part of what comes with the Equal Protection Clause that women don't currently have full protection under the 14th Amendment, 
But once ERA is in place and women go to court and say, hey, you know, 75% of rape cases are never prosecuted. Those that are, are often discounted and lead to no incarceration. Only 2% of rapists spend one day behind bars. You know, you're much more likely to go to prison if you steal my money than if you steal my bodily integrity. When you make those kind of arguments in court now, and my clients will sometimes say this to me, how come, how come I'm not entitled to the same respect and treatment as this victim of robbery? Is that fair? And I say, that's not fair, but it is legal. It's legal because you as a woman are not entitled to equal, emphasize equal protection. But right now, no, you're not entitled to equal protection. I'm sorry, you're going to have to go home and live with your abusive spouse and get your ass kicked and raped. Um, yet, <laughs> if you look up um, rape law, and you see the sorts of things that rape law permits women to subject themselves to in terms of their ability to consent, there's a conflict. So in a sense, the law is presently written so that you're not allowed to consent to torture. But if you just frame it as, as sexual violence and take it out of the definition of torture and just put it over into the, the way laws are defined for sex crimes prosecution purposes, uh, they do let women consent. So one of the things I teach and one of the things I argue about all the time is the importance of women reframing their suffering. Don't call it rape. Don't call it sexual assault. Call it torture. Don't call it rape. Call it, you know, call it whatever else you can that doesn't force you to adopt the standards of law that permit you to consent to things that are otherwise considered inhumane and against public policy. Torture is just a very good example um, of what we otherwise don't tolerate. Uh, you know, waterboarding, frankly, um, causes less harm to people than what some violent torture porn causes to women. And yet this country goes ballistic when anybody talks about waterboarding. Those very same people do not speak up on behalf of women's uh, rights and the basic humanity of, of what happens to, to the ungodly human inhumanity of what happens to women's bodies uh, in violent torture porn. So torture is against the law, period, as something else, then we do tolerate it. Well, guess what? That would be illegal under the Equal Rights Amendment, as well it should be. It shouldn't be about framing. It should be about the behavior. But you can currently reframe something that is otherwise illegal and intolerable as sexual, and because women are not entitled to equal protection of the law, that is constitutionally permissible today. It oughtn't be, but it is. Depressing, I know. Another thing that people don't realize, and I wonder if this is still the case, Wendy, is that when insurance companies look at women as, um, you know, a customer, um, they are legally allowed to charge her 31% more than a male for the exact same policy because, in theory, she's so complex that, you know, God knows what could happen. And yet, um, nothing to do with her reproductive organs or life are covered by this same policy. Yeah, there's a lot of sex discrimination in insurance that I think will become subject to challenge. I don't know if it'll succeed as, as equally or as readily as some of the challenges to the anti-violence uh, laws, but um, because the physical and the body differences between males and females and and other genders, the fact, that, the fact that you have physical differences will always be a legitimate reason for the courts to uphold disparate treatment. Um, and, and I think insurance coverage is, is certainly one of them. And let's be clear, just because the Equal Rights Amendment becomes law doesn't mean all sex discrimination becomes illegal. It just becomes subject to strict scrutiny instead of middle tier scrutiny, which means less discrimination will be tolerated than is currently tolerated. Uh, I always like to ask people to consider it like a triangle with strict scrutiny at the top of the little top of the triangle, middle tier being the middle of the triangle and rational basis scrutiny being at the bottom. The size of the piece of the triangle uh, sort of depicts how much discrimination is tolerated. If you're at the top with strict scrutiny, very little discrimination gets through. If you're in the middle, which is where women are, a lot 
of discrimination gets through in terms of legal, what the courts will tolerate as legal. And if you're at the bottom, which is rational basis scrutiny, everything gets through. Women were at that bottom under rational basis scrutiny for a long time. We got bumped up to intermediate scrutiny uh, in the 70s, and then uh, we've been stuck there ever since. Well, other categories are up at the top in that tiny little piece of the triangle where they get strict scrutiny. So almost no discrimination is tolerated inside that little piece of the triangle. Well, the one area where I think there will continue to be discrimination against women, even after ERA is is ratified, um, will have to do with body parts and health. Um, there just there are so many ways for insurance companies and the government to argue that treating women differently because they have breasts is is legitimate, even under strict scrutiny analysis. Some of that different treatment uh, will will be tolerated. It won't be logical, it won't be rational, but it will be tolerated. And courts love to prop up this notion of differentness as an excuse. Well, you have different body parts, therefore um, the law has to treat you differently. That's going to continue to be part of the justification behind restrictions on abortion. That's why, you know, when people say, oh, this is going to make abortion on demand legal. No, 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 no. Not only is, as you pointed out, Cam, abortion is a privacy rights doctrine, not an eco protection doctrine. Um, it is, it is uh, a body parts issue. So abortion will continue to be uh, I, I don't even know if the right word is protected. It will be it will continue to be subjected to this fighting, you know, over that that gray area of uh, when life begins and all of this stuff. It's absolutely not uh, going to be affected. At, not much, maybe a little bit, but not much. So anybody arguing from the religious point of view that ERA is going to make abortion on demand uh, the law of the land is a hundred percent incorrect. And um, I also think that we have um, we have the last three states that ratified. One's Nevada out in the west. One's Illinois in the north. One is Virginia in the south. That is a that's um, a pretty good basis upon which the argument um, that we can beat the argument that it is um, not um, vastly accepted when you know we have a very different locations in which the states are in that that have rat recently ratified yep we have a lot of diversity in support of era including people who are very religious there's a you know there's there's not a lot of religious opposition to era there is fake religious opposition to right ERA. exactly it is not. Exactly. If, if there were lots of religious or other opposition to ERA, uh, we wouldn't see the numbers we see when we do regular polling, which is like 90 percent of people uh, on average support equal rights. They, in, in fact, nobody understands the concept of not having equal rights. It's such a it's such a silly question. Like, who's against equality? How the hell can you be against equality? It's so stupid. You could be against abortion, but that's not the same. And if you want to be, it, it's like, it, it's like saying, you know, are you in favor of separate water fountains for black people? Who says yes to that? What the <laughs> hell? You know, it's really that stupid. Um, and that's, I think, why we don't see a lot of opposition to it. But remember, I said, it's not about open opposition in a sociocultural sense. It's about money. There's a lot of money behind destroying ERA behind killing it secretly, killing it softly. Um, and the enormous amounts of, the, the reason I know there are enormous amounts of money behind the scenes is partly based on the fact that there isn't a lot of money uh, openly supporting ERA, despite the wealth of numbers we see in the, in the polls. In other words, if that many people really do support ERA, where's the money? You know, why isn't Time's Up supporting ERA? Why isn't the Me Too movement putting this at the top of the list of their priorities? The, the National Women's Law Council. National Women's Law Center, absolutely useless. Yeah. I mean, this is these are heavily funded groups, millions and millions and millions of dollars, who know that, that no matter what women's issues they stand up for, uh, those issues are going nowhere without equality at the constitutional baseline, and yet they don't support ERA. What does that tell you? That you know, one of our, our, our wonderful um, guests at the Equal Means Equal House was uh, the head of now in Florida, Kim Porteous, and she was so excited to go back and um, 
ratify ERA in Florida, and they're very determined to do so. But I knew that when she presented this to National Now, she was going to get a bucket of cold water. And, and, and it's only because we've experienced it so many times. You go in thinking that everybody wants this thing, because why wouldn't you, especially if you're a major women's organization that was founded um, one of the, the pillars of your your creation was to make sure the Equal Rights Amendment was ultimately ratified. Why would you not support this? Why? Where what were these groups? So uh, anyway, I hear from Kim that um, that no, National Now will not get behind Florida now <laughs> to fight for, you know, because we were considering taking the tour bus, the ice cream truck, through down through North Carolina and South Carolina and Georgia and then into Florida as a sort of like preamble. Let's ratify all of these states. You know, it's not doesn't just have to be Virginia. And um, she thought the momentum and the excitement and everything was going to carry over. And that's where you see the schism between the people that care, the feminists on the ground and our allies. And the sort of what I call the corporate capitalist establishment that have, I, I mean, to be kind, more complex agendas. We are extremely simplistic at Equal Means Equal. We have a one-line mission. Get the Equal Rights Amendment ratified, adopted, and implemented. That's Yeah. It. And, and, and look at if you don't have that as your bumper sticker, equality first, everything else second, then you are actually subjugating women, period, end of discussion. You're spending money subjugating women because you're just pushing crumbs around on a half-empty plate. No one, it's, it's like uh, in, the in the antebellum South, you know, claiming that you care about slavery and only asking for warmer socks for the slaves. That's not how you, that's how you <laughs> Is slavery. that true? Right? Did this happen? Well, no, I, no, I'm saying like imagine. Oh, okay. Claiming, but ima imagine claiming to be anti-slavery in the antebellum South and then fighting for better socks. That's what it's like for <laughs> for these women's groups. And and um, I think I think just to kind of wrap up what you what you've said, uh, and to make it very pointed is we've got the National Organization for Women, Times Up, the Me Too movement. Um, National Women's Law Center, all these groups extremely well-funded, intentionally not supporting the Equal Rights Amendment, yet claiming to care about women's rights. So I think we have to call it what it is um, and also call them out in the sense that we have to um, challenge people who think that by sending them their money, they're doing something good for women. We have to get the word out because there are a lot of people with money who want to help. And, you know, if you, they just look at the mainstream news and say, oh, boy, you know, I'd, um, I'd really like to uh, help this cause. Where do I send my money? If you just Google on the Internet, where do I send my money? I want to help women's rights organizations. You're going to get these big, uh, ineffective, unhelpful groups. They're the ones that are going to pop up. And your money is going to be wasted. Your money ought to be going to the lesser known people. Equal means equal being an important example of that, but not the only one. And the money ought to be going to uh, the intentionally going to the groups that aren't well known, because we can now see that the ones who are getting propped up as the heroes in the stories and as the groups that are doing all the good work they are the ones that are not supporting ERA. So on purpose, don't send your money to them. Send them, send your money anywhere else, but don't send your money to them. And it's not, you know, it's not, um, it's not, I'm not, you know, engaging in unfair play or whatever you want to call it to, to say this, because we are, we're going to do our work, whether we get funded or not, we've been doing our work with equal means equal with no money or little bits of money. And we're going to continue to do it. So we're not asking for money. We are saying, don't waste your resources on groups that are covertly undermining the key mission here, which is to establish baseline constitutional equality from which all other rights are protected. And if you don't have it, your rights are meaningless. You can pass all the equal pay laws you want. You will never get equal pay without ERA ever. 
You go into court and argue, well, wait a minute, that equal pay law was passed. I want my equal pay. Ultimately, the courts are only required to enforce it if the Constitution demands it. So if your equal pay rights are in a statute rather than a constitution, they're not actually equal rights. Don't be naive and don't send your money to groups that are only fighting for these meager statutory interests. You should be sending all of your energy and all of your money to groups that are only fighting for the Equal Rights Amendment. It really is that basic. It really is that simple. And I think Equal Means Equal has done such a great job shining a light on not just the importance of ERA, but the importance of the general public, now that we're this close to ERA passing in Virginia, um, shining a light on how important it is that the regular public understand not all women's groups are helping, they're actually hurting. I'm sorry to tell you this, I hope it doesn't burst your bubble, but if it does, then your bubble needed bursting anyway. So Kamala and I went to a national um, organizations meeting, which I won't mention which one it was, but their top five um, points in their introduction um, of their, you know, um, in their ballroom, um, their top five points, none of them directly had to do with women's rights at all. And this was when we had 37 out of the 38 states we needed to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment. I'm all for intersectionality, but I'm I really get upset when I only hear it directed at women's rights groups and not at other groups. So people are like, oh, go fight for uh, against gun violence. It's intersectional. I'm like, why don't those people come fight with us for the Equal Rights Amendment? I'm really I get tired of people like trying to pull women's rights groups away from fighting for women's rights when climate change people don't come fight for the ERA. Exactly, exactly. And you can say that about any group. The, you know, gay rights groups are up and down on ERA. Sometimes they, they, they want to help ERA, sometimes they don't. We, are, we as a, an organization at Equal Means Equal filed an amicus brief in support of uh, the case that's now pending before the United States Supreme Court to ensure that the word sex is construed by the courts to cover all forms of sex and gender. We support that. We've always supported that. But I, I thought, my goodness, you know, the list of amicus briefs filed in the Bostock case to support that view uh, was was a mile long. The organizations that joined in that effort have not joined us in our effort. And right. I don't get that. I don't get that. We're always forced to be intersectional, but no one else is coming in to fight for us. And the really? one way the one way intersectional philosophy is not actually intersectional. It's just, um, you know, uh, divisive anti-feminist philosophy masquerading as intersectionality. Exactly. Yeah. They're, they're keep, they, they see that we have a lot of energy within the women's movement um, after, you know, things like the women's march and, um, you know, different, um, you know, after Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. And they want to pull our energy off of fighting for our own rights. And so let's also can... and let's remember that that's not a new strategy in the again in the in the antebellum South and you know even long before when when women's rights groups were fighting for enfranchisement of women, uh, we fought hand in hand alongside the anti-slavery organizations. And it was really a, a forces a forces beyond both groups that, that came down and created a divide and kind of caused this race versus sex tension. And it's been that kind of strategy ever since, frankly. The mo- when women start to rise up, the powers that be come down and divide us. First, it was race versus sex. Then it's even within uh, sex and gender, there was a forced fight between heterosexual and, and gay women, LGBTQ women. Now it's kind of, uh, you know, transgender issues have caused another whole layer of fighting. Uh, then once we, you know, got over that, uh, now now we're forced to divide ourselves in this other way that, you know, you, sh- you should care about climate change and guns rather than baseline equality being propagandized to care about other things has always been a strategy forced upon women to keep us from mobilizing as a united front and the, the real problem is that we don't teach that to young people we don't te- we we don't teach ERA 
in schools, colleges, or law schools. I can promise you, I never learned about ERA in law school. So why would we ever teach people uh, to understand the way that women have been um, controlled and and frankly precluded from mobilizing as a unified force. Unlike unlike what happens to any other group in society, women are propagandized and manipulated um, and coerced, frankly, to care about other things besides equality. And I don't think that's an accident. I think that's intentional. I think it's been around for hundreds of years. I think we're really good at self-policing, though. I think that women um, are, or we ourselves are really, really good at internalizing um, <clears throat> this idea that we are, I mean, it's, we know we're very competent because we're moms, right? So, so we have to be competent in terms of keeping human beings alive, but then we don't actually um we abdicate responsibility for that competence. You know, we we don't want to take on the leadership role that we actually are is our dharma to fulfill because I don't know. I don't know why if we're frightened of taking it on or we we would rather not uh believe that we are as competent and capable as we are. I mean, the fact of the matter is that if women don't put their own oxygen masks on, the, the, the person sitting next to them is planet Earth with all the children, the men, the animals, the food, the water, are sitting next to us on that plane. And in our attempt to be civil, in our attempt to propitiate, in our attempt to flee from our own power, we're actually allowing the plane to hit the ground. And, and I, I just don't understand why we, why we, we are doing that. Well, we, we are easily propagandized and culturally controlled for a variety of reasons that we could do an entire podcast on. I think very, very, very astute sociologists and psychologists and so forth, anthropologists would ha be happy to ex uh, examine that question and give us pretty disturbing answers. But there've always been, uh, I don't want to use the word radical because I think it's needlessly pejorative. There have always been egalitarian feminists out there, male and female, who've tried to have voice and they get drowned out or they get misled or they get punished. Uh, they don't get rewarded, however you want to see it. Uh, you know, the 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 voices that rise up are are selected. And the fact is, uh, our media, our mainstream media could choose to elevate the voices of women who are demanding equality first, everything else second, but they choose not to. So I blame the media first and foremost. And I think our, our next generation of young people that, that pays a lot less attention to media today uh, may be uh, the generation that, that gets us over the hump on this and just rejects this idea that they should be, be obedient to these cultural norms that are thrust upon us and ways of being that, that make us uh, um, less than and other than uh, what we are. I don't know. I think that's a whole other podcast we ought to do, Cam. I love it. Let me just read you this little poem because you just inspired me to tell you. A, a former student of mine sent this to me the other day, um, but it ties in. Over the span of centuries, animals evolved to survive, survive their surroundings. So what happens when women finally learn to throw back this, 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 this? I love that poem because it really is about women reaching the stage where um, they, they're going to learn to throw back. And I think, um, you know, we're getting there. We can only take so much. Uh, subjugation masquerading as a delightful uh, home with a white picket fence, subjugation masquerading as anything that seems to feel good is still subjugation. And I think, especially with the advent of the internet, we now see it much more clearly than ever before. I think this new generation of young people is not so easily duped. So I have a lot of hope that we're going in the right direction. Um, and I think equal means equal is, is, is an important part of it because the way that you and, and we have all worked so hard to inspire young people, that doesn't change. You know, so many young people who tell me about when they've heard you speak, Cam, or you, Natalie, and they say, 
I never knew that before. I never felt this way. I feel invigorated. I never understood this about my life before. That doesn't change. Once these young women understand uh, these important issues, uh, it's in them forever. They can't unlearn what we've taught them. And so I, I, that's why one of the reasons I'm so proud to do this podcast, it's another way of reaching people and, and giving them information that they can't unlearn, no matter how hard they try. So anyway, <laughs> let's, let's wrap it up because we're over time already. And this was wonderful. I so enjoy being with you guys. I wish you lived in my neighborhood. I think we'd, we'd be dangerous. Um, Well, we already are, and we don't live in the same neighborhood. That's true. That's true. (laughs) We're dangerous in a podcast sort of way. Yes, we are. Um, Thank you all for being here, and thank you, Natalie, for being our special guest slash co-conspirator. You got it. Always here. And And hey, listen, everybody, uh, very important heads up. January 8th is the first day of session in Richmond, Virginia, which is the capital of the state. We need to have hundreds and thousands of people standing outside that building on January 8th saying that we want to vote on the Equal Rights Amendment. If we do not pressure our issue, there are others like those uh, involved with gun control and Medicare for all, et cetera, or Medicare expansion that are equally motivated to push the legislators to vote for their issue. But I think that it's time that we put ourselves at the front of the line and refuse, no matter how worthy these other causes may be, refuse to allow ourselves to be sidetracked, refuse to allow the Democratic legislators that promised us a vote on equal rights to get away with one single vote that is not ERA. We cannot have it. We cannot allow it. And in order to pull that off, we need you. We need people power. We need them to know that people care. And the only way to do that is to show up. Show up. Show up. Give us some resources and we will get buses like we did in Illinois. They're expensive as hell, but they're extremely effective. They're about $1,500 a bus. We can work with the unions that we worked with before. We need a massive outpouring for ERA on day one. Natalie and I are moving back to Virginia. Dear God, help us. (laughs) January 7th. And we will not leave that goddamn state until the vote happens oh yeah pledge to you on the right now right here we will stay they will be so sick of us they will vote on this thing just to get rid of us <laughs> and i'll take I, it <laughs> i bet you that there are so many state house of delegates members right now oh former state house of delegates members right now that are really wishing that they had voted yes on the era because we came in with a fury and we, I, you know me, I'm not afraid of playing dirty. And um, we did it and we won. Yes, you did. You guys, I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of you. I've never, I never believed that we're going to get this done without a little bit of disobedience in the streets. And that's equal that's means right. equal. You're the guy, you're the only ones doing it. And I'm so proud of you. Thank you both. Thanks, Thank you. Both. See you Thank next you. time. Wendy. Happy Thanksgiving. Wendy, you too. Wendy, I love you, Wendy. And I love how strong you are in the face of, of, of people that say that you, you know, that your way is too direct. Your way is, is too uh, combative. Your way your way is right. So whatever it takes, we're with you. We love you. And we thank you. Oh, thank you, darling. See you next time, Kim. Bye. You have been listening to Woman's Journal 2.0. A new podcast to educate and mobilize the fight for equal rights under the law. Produced by Grant Murphy. Please subscribe, share with your networks, and help build support for the ERA. To learn more and join the fight, go to equalmeansequal.org and sign up for our newsletter. And follow Wendy Murphy on Twitter at WMurphyLaw. Thank you. See you next time.